Heroes get remembered. Here's the windup. Legends never die. Fastball hits deep to right. It's going to be it. Way back there. Oh, Welcome to Hardball. Today, today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. Major League Baseball's history in first person. Conversations that span almost 20 years. It is 9.46 p.m. With the men who saw and made that history. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Many of whom are no longer with us. Swung on and missed a perfect game. Stories from the 1930s. To the 21st century. This is Hardball. Dad, you want to have a catch? Welcome into Hardball. My name is Chris Camino, and this is our continued trek through the history of Major League Baseball, one conversation at a time. For those of you who have listened to an episode or two, or hopefully three, thanks for coming back today. For those of you who have just found us, thanks, and I hope after you listen to today's episode, you go back and find a few others that might interest you. Here's what I hope you find out if you don't know. It doesn't matter who the subject of a specific episode is. I promise you will hear about their teammates, their cities, their opponents, and stories that seem to at times come from beyond the left field wall. The history of some of these men, very much including today's guest, reflect the times not only that they played in, but lived in. Many of these gentlemen will speak of their childhoods. And remember, for some, that means the 1930s, 40s, and certainly 50s, when they speak of how they got from a small town anywhere to recalling and telling us about their first day in the bigs, I hope the social aspect of American history is not lost on you. As I say before every one of these, these are firsthand accounts, conversations, not interviews, that hopefully feel like the three of us, me, the guest, and you, have pulled up chairs and became new old friends. Before I tell you about how I connected with this Hall of Famer, I want to ask that if you enjoy what you hear today, could you take a few minutes and maybe tell a friend or two, a baseball fan or six? And if you can hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you are listening on, You'll be alerted when a new episode drops. Lastly, if you listen on Apple or iTunes, can you rate and maybe write a quick review? Been told that that does help more people become aware of Hardball. As we have relaunched this series, there are new episodes, those that have not been published yet, like this one, and others that go as far back as 23 years, and some that I am recording as we speak. Players who played with and against Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig, Hank Greenberg and Jackie Robinson. Soon to come, my conversations with Hank Aaron, Willie Mays, Ted Williams, Bob Feller, and more. Greats from the 1930s and the 21st century and every decade in between. An attempt to have these men tell some of their story, many of them 20 to 40 years removed from their playing days. I've had the incredible good fortune to meet, then sit down with some of the greatest to ever play the game. Most of all these things, these moments and conversations stay with me. I can tell you the name of the hotel I met Rachel Robinson in in 2009 in St. Louis how we sat in the lobby and talked about the Brooklyn my father told me about in a time before I was born. I can tell you about sitting in the home dugout in Yankee Stadium with Braves pitching coach Leo Mazzoni at the 1996 World Series. Five hours before game time, how like school children we snuck across the field and knew we shouldn't be in there, but couldn't help ourselves. As we spoke of who else had sat in this, and I quote, exact same spot over the last 75 years. I can distinctively recall the nerves that came with knowing that the next day I was going to be speaking with Ted Williams 
in what would turn out to be one of his last conversations with an outsider before his passing. The strange thing is, truth be known, I don't have much recall from many things these days. I can do the basics, wife, kid's birthday, my anniversary, but outside of my two daughters' milestone moments, which I probably enjoyed much more than they did, not much seems to have stuck, except for these meetings and conversations. I bring this up because like many people this past week, it was time to recall time spent with or time spent seeing Brooks Robinson, whether in person or on the playing field. Seeing him play, hearing him call Orioles games, to watching how he lived his life after his days in uniform were done. I met him in Atlanta, and of course he was doing good work, raising money for the Baseball Alumni Association. We sat in a dugout at Georgia Tech's baseball stadium, and of course this was after I was introduced to and amazed by the fact that 500 home run hitting Harmon Killebrew was my size. Hell, I was bigger, except for my forearms. Amazingly, before I could ask Brooks anything, he asked me about my baseball fandom. When I told him I grew up in Staten Island in a very big Met house, I could see the look on his face. When I explained that the 1969 World Series were and are my first sports memories, but not knowing that the six-year-old me would not fully understand what history would say about that season and series until much later, he stopped me and deadpanned in what was still a distinct small-town Arkansas aw shucks way. I wasn't very good in that one. I hope you watch the next year. I was a whole lot better. And that was the beginning of a 20-minute or so conversation that never included a brag or a boast from the man that had become as associated with his team and city as any other in sports and beyond. I won't go through his numbers, his accolades, too many to list. His first ballot Hall of Fame induction in 1983 says it all. Who he was as a man, a father, an ambassador for Baltimore in the game? Many are in a much better position to do so than me, and this week they did. I just wanted to share with you a quick conversation with Mr. Oriel. I have another one that I will put up at a later date, perhaps with my conversations with both Earl Weaver and Jim Palmer to create a Baltimore Oriole episode. I just thought it would be nice to hear his voice. And to all Orioles fans, I am sorry for your loss. To all baseball fans, I am sorry for our loss. Robinson. Left field. Carbo going back. Warning track. Looks up. Over. Brooks Robinson has given the Orioles the lead with a home run, and it's 4 3 Orioles. didn't need a candy bar named after him because uh, all the people in Baltimore named their kids after him.
when you get to the big leagues, you know, you got to get here, you got to stay here, you got to figure out how to get better, and then you got to decide who you want to be like. And for all of us, you know, who knew, you know, we knew he was the best. great opportunity in the past to speak to a couple of times and we do it again tonight well because he's one of the most talked about players in major league baseball history he is mr brooks robinson mr robinson how are you this evening i'm doing fine Chris. thank you we appreciate your time it, uh, it, nice nice to be with you is it strange i just mentioned um there were certain players and baseball players who loved liked disliked depends upon who they play for depends upon who you root for but universally there was a couple of guys a handful of guys who go down as maybe just never being in that unlike category. And I would certainly put you in that category. Can you believe going back to 1955 to the present, that might be the case? <laughs> well, that's awful nice of you. I like to think so. Uh, I've enjoyed uh, being a baseball player. I've enjoyed the fans. The press has been good to me. And so really, you know, I, I just uh, I try to make people smile a lot, feel good about themselves, and that uh, is kind of the way my philosophy is. Was it always that way? And, and the reason I ask that, because I know there's – pressures that baseball players talk about today there was pressures back then especially when you're talking about people wanting your job with as many minor leagues as each team had um did you make a conscious effort to be a guy who would be available or not really uh not really i I mean i i guess it's kind of your background you grow up in maybe your parents have a lot to do with it but uh it's never been something i tried to do i just didn't uh, enjoy life and have a pretty positive outlook about everything and uh, just kind of Go from day to day. Well, again, you were talked about in that vein, so I just wanted to let you know Thank that you. as a baseball fan. Now, That's growing wonderful. up in Little Rock, Arkansas, I, yep. I, I never knew this. Um, you went to high school, and your high school did not have a baseball team. That's correct. Yeah, I went to the largest school in Arkansas, it was Little Rock Central, and uh, we had what we call the Big Seven with the six or seven largest cities in Arkansas, like Hot Springs, North Little Rock, Pine Bluff, Texarkana. And we had what we call the Big Seven, but they, they did not have baseball. They had football, basketball, and track. And I really played all my baseball uh, after uh, school was out. I played my last four years of American Legion baseball. And we had a great program there. We went to Altus, Oklahoma for a big tournament every year over to Memphis, Tennessee. So we had some uh, outstanding teams and uh, got to travel, and uh, it was uh, real nice. Now, is it true, though, were you really discovered, obviously playing American Legion, Paul, but were you discovered in a church league? 
Well, I played. Uh, I, I was. I played a lot of uh, softball, baseball when I was growing up, and I did play for uh, Capital View Methodist Church there in in Little Rock. Uh, they had a team in the church league, so I did play church league ball. I don't know if I was discovered there, but I did play softball in the church league, and uh, I was playing in two or three leagues all the time. Did you ever notice when scouts would actually come around? Were you aware that there might be people in the stands such as that? Oh yeah, we uh, we we knew who all the scouts were. Uh, uh, when we played Legion ball, there were a lot of them. Uh, <clears throat> several of them lived there in Little Rock. They all also had what they call bird dogs. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, say uh, a big time scout might hire a, a person to, in Little Rock to to look out for any good players who might come that way. So they call them bird dogs. But uh, I knew two or three uh, play, uh, gentlemen like that who were always at in the stands, and I saw them around, knew them, and everything, and. Uh, so I had a chance to uh, to sign with about uh, oh seven or eight teams when I graduated in high school back in '55, and it really came down to Baltimore and Cincinnati uh, as to who I would sign with. And I went with Baltimore because uh, they had a a bad team, and that was kind of they kind of convinced me that was the quickest way to the big leagues. And consequently, uh, it, it was well founded because I got a chance to play a couple weeks when I was 18 in the big leagues. But uh, I made the right choice in that regard. Now, is it nerve-wracking as a 16-year-old if you look over a shoulder or as you're walking out to third base or stepping into the batter's box knowing that there are scouts around? I never did think uh, too much about that, to tell you the truth. Uh, uh, we just, uh, you know, I, I, I knew that uh, many years ago that's all I wanted to do was be a big league baseball player. And when you're 14 or 15 or 16 years old, you're always pretty presumptuous. And I think you say, <laughs> well, you know, I'm going to be a big league baseball player. That's all there is to it. Little did I realize that the fatality rate was pretty enormous for players who sign. I think uh, less than three percent or whatever make it to the major league of players who sign. So, but uh, I never thought of those things. Uh, I kind of tagged along after my dad. He was a uh, an outstanding semi-pro player there in Little Rock, and I was a bat boy for two or three of the teams that he played on. But uh, that was always my dream. Uh, in the eighth grade, I wrote a booklet called My Vocation, or what I wanted to do. I wrote it on being a professional baseball player. And I kind of knew the history of the game, and I can remember in 1948 when Babe Ruth died, uh, I uh, uh, cut out the, the clippings and put it in the, the back of uh, my uh, my scrapbook. And incidentally, uh, tonight I'm having dinner, actually, with Babe Ruth's daughter here in Baltimore. Just thought I'd throw that in. Well, Julia Ruth Stevens, I believe. I've yeah, s- yeah, she's going to be here tonight. and. Uh, some of the people from the Babe Ruth Museum are going down to have dinner with her, and I'm, I'm one of them. I've had the great pleasure to speak to her in the past, and I know she did write a book fairly recently about her time growing up as Babe Ruth's daughter. That's exactly right, yeah. And Mr. Brooks Robinson again tonight. Now, Brooks, I'm going to say this jokingly, um, did you did you crush him in the contract negotiations when you were signing? <laughs> yeah, I really crushed him. <laughs> you know, we, we signed at a period, uh, everyone back in the 50s signed at a period where if you received more than $4,000, you were declared a bonus baby, and you had to go directly to the major leagues for two years, whether you played or not. And I have yet to see anyone come out of high school outside of maybe a pitcher and be able to play in in the big leagues. But no one offered me a lot of money. They offered me $4,000. That was was my salary for the first year. And uh, I took it and ran and uh, ended up going to York, Pennsylvania, and and really played against – it was a Class B league there, and they played against players my own speed. And – Consequently, I think a few of the bonus players, it, it really, uh, in Baltimore, was giving away a lot of money at that time. Uh, they had a lot of bonus players who uh, signed, but uh, none of them uh, really panned out. And uh, 
it's like almost losing two years just sitting and watching or, or playing and, and being overmatched. So uh, it really turned out best for me, even though no one offered me a lot of money, over 4000 But uh, it, it worked out well. Now, growing up in Little Rock, we know that I think the most Southern baseball at that point might have been St. Louis still. Yeah. Who did you actually root for? You mentioned cutting out the Babe Ruth article. Were you uh, a fan of one team in particular or a couple of players in particular? Uh, I was a St. Louis Cardinal fan. I grew up uh, uh, listening to the Cardinal games on radio. Harry Carey, and we were able to get the games there in Little Rock. Uh, they used to come through Little Rock every uh, year and play an exhibition game on their way back back to St. Louis. They usually played the Chicago White Sox. So I'd take a day off from school with my dad or whoever it was, and we'd go out and watch them play. And uh, I was a big Cardinal fan. Stan Musial always kind of been my hero, but I followed all those players. They had, uh, ben, you know, they had uh, Al Brazel, uh, Jablonski, Marty Marion, Shane Deese, uh, Howie Paulette. So I, I recall a lot of the names. Uh, Terry Moore played center field for him, and uh, Bobby Del Greco. So I remember a lot of those names. Now, how interesting was it when you get a chance to not only meet Stan Musial, but I'm assuming you might have played against him in an All-Star game. Oh, I did get a chance to play against Musial in exhibition games and All-Star games, and uh, I see him every year now at the um, whenever we make it to the Hall of Fame inductions. But uh, I, I was a big thrill, and uh, I've often told him, uh, you know, that you were my hero. In fact, uh, I went to Vietnam with him back in 1967, about uh, oh six or seven of us. I think it was Hank Aaron, Joe Torres, myself, Musial, uh, Mel Allen, who's passed away, uh, Harmon Killebrew. We went to Vietnam for five weeks and uh, visited a lot of hospitals and traveled the whole country doing a dip, different different things, visiting the, visiting the troops. So I got to know him a little bit better on that particular trip. Were you always a third baseman? Actually, I signed as a second baseman. I was a second baseman the last uh, two years I played American Legion baseball. I pitched, a, I pitched some and I was an infielder, but the last two years I really uh, was a second baseman and I signed with the Orioles as a second baseman, and about 50 games into my first professional season, they just thought in the long run uh, third base was going to be my best position. Uh, never possessing uh, great speed, uh, third base, you don't have to worry about that. It's more of a reflex position, and, and that was uh, the best suited for me, and it turned out that that was the best thing that ever happened to me. Now, everybody talks about your glove, but how good was your arm, in your opinion? Well, I had, a, I had an average arm. I think my arm got better. Uh, uh, I think my main asset was I got uh, got rid of the ball um, quicker than most third basemen. But, uh, I mean, I wouldn't, uh, you know, when I talk about great arms, I talk about a guy like uh, Aurelio Rodriguez, God rest his soul, he's passed away, and uh, Cleet Boyer or Sal Bando, those names come to mind. But uh, I got the ball on its way, and I think my arm got stronger as the years progressed. The short-billed batting helmet. How did that actually come about? And were you the only guy? Because I just visualize even the footage that I've seen. Your helmet always looked different. Why is that? It, it was a little different. I don't know anyone else who had the short bill uh, hat. Uh, actually, uh, there was a year back in uh, around 1969 or seven, somewhere in there that that they, they brought in the flap on the hat, mm -hmm. and uh, they designated everyone who came into the major leagues would have to wear the. Uh, uh, the flap. Uh, if you were already in the major leagues and didn't want to wear it, well, you didn't have to. But I, I figured more protection, the better off it was going to be for me. And uh, I uh, actually, when the, when when the flap, when the hat with the flap arrived, I started using it. But I felt like the brim was a little longer, and also the the uh, the, the flap that protects your your ear was was uh, it protruded out a little further. And I found myself thinking about the hat 
more so than the pitcher. So I just took a hacksaw blade and I cut about an inch and a half off of the brim. I took about a half an inch off of the flap. So that's how I got the, the short brim hat. But I get a lot of questions about that. Now, eventually, did the manufacturer make it shorter for you, or yeah. did you just keep doing that year in, year out? Actually, they, they, I kept doing it year in, year out. I had the, um, uh, the bad, I mean, you keep these helmets forever almost, but I only had three or four, I guess, in, in the time that I played through 77 that I used, and the clubhouse guy would take it and cut it off. Mm-hmm. Now, 1966, a heck of a year for you, both individually and as a team. Going into that Dodger World Series, I'm assuming they were the favorite. Would that be correct? That's correct. Yeah, I played in four, and the two we were supposed to win, we lost. The two we were supposed to lose, we won. But the Dodgers were, were favored. They had been there before, a lot of their players. Uh, we had one guy, I think Frank Robinson, who played in the 61 World Series. And... Uh, uh, that was it, but we were the, really the underdogs in that particular series. Absolutely right. And you spanked them. Well, we did spank them. Uh, not much happened. I think they ended up with the worst team batting average for a losing team in World Series history. We had the the worst team batting average for a winning team in World Series history. Uh, uh, probably most of the fireworks were the first game, the first inning, and the, uh, Frank Robinson and I hit back-to-back home runs, and uh, we were ahead three to nothing just like that. And the last three games. Uh, uh, we're all shutouts. Uh, Koufax pitched the second game, and uh, I think it was six zip. Uh, they made six errors behind him. I think in the last two games, I know we're one nothing, one nothing. But uh, we re- we received a, a little break, I guess you could say, with Koufax. Uh, the Dodgers had to go in right down to the wire before they sensed the pennant, and mm-hmm. I think Koufax had to pitch in one of those games. So consequently, we faced Drysdale the first game, which wasn't any piece of cake, believe me. But uh, Koufax, uh, Drysdale had to pitch two games against us, and that was the last game that Sandy Koufax ever pitched, that second game of that World Series. That's right. He did retire at a very young age right after yeah. that. Mm-hmm. Mr. Robinson, is there ever enough time passes when 1969 still doesn't hurt a little bit? Oh, we, uh, we think about it, but, I, you know, it's just one of those things, I guess. That was probably the best team I played on, and a lot of crazy things happened, but that's just the, the way the ball bounces. I mean, when you play four out of, four out of seven games, uh, Anything can happen, and you know that. I think that the the fact that the, the the Mets were so bad for many many years, no one really gave them a chance. But here's a team that won a hundred games, and you win a hundred games, you you're a pretty good ball club. Mm-hmm. And we won the first game here, beating Seaver, and then I think Kuzman beat us two to one, and we lost three to one in uh, uh, three straight up in New York. But uh, you know, if you're along, if you're around long enough, someone's going to get you. You're going to get them. It never fails. Now, when AstroTurf came about, did you actually? perfect and I, I practiced some way you and Boo Powell that one hop throw? No, not really. That was the first time we'd ever played on AstroTurf in 1970 when we went to the World Series that uh, AstroTurf in uh, Cincinnati, but uh, we didn't, we didn't, we never really worked on anything. I think the biggest question in that World Series at before the season, before the series started was what kind of shoes we were going to wear, mm-hmm. regular spikes or some kind of AstroTurf shoes, and we all I think ended up wearing our regular spikes in that particular series, but I did make a play. Uh, I think you're referring to behind third base. Right. I just got in throw and one bounce, one bounce to Boog Powell. No, I was I was trying to throw that ball all the way, but it just <laughs> took a perfect hop to him. And a little later, I found out that that's the best way to make those long throws. I saw Concepcion make that throw a lot of times with one hop to the first baseman. How strange was it, AstroTurf, the first time you step on and realize we're going to play baseball on this? Not any big adjustment. Uh, you'd take 10 or 15 minutes of, of fielding, uh, 
ground balls, and you, you know, and it, it's not any big adjustment. Uh, I think it, I think if you played on Astro AstroTurf 160 games, you ought to get 30 hits or more a year. I don't know how you can put numbers on it, but I think that certainly, uh, you know, you, the balls are just going to get get through there a little quicker. I think you ought to be a better fielder. Uh, uh, not too many bad hops on that AstroTurf. You can charge the ball a little more recklessly and know just what kind of hop it's going to take. So. Uh, I think you ought to be overall be a better player when you play on AstroTurf. As we finish up with Brooks Robinson tonight, Mr. Robinson, I also am curious, did you vote yourself for the All-Century team? Did you take a ballot and actually do it the uh, way that fans did it? No, I don't think, I don't, I don't remember. I don't think we had anything to do with it, the players. Did, did you look at it yourself and, and maybe in your head start to figure out, hmm, who would I vote for in this situation? Well, I, I think I'd vote for Mike Schmidt more than anyone else. I mean, I, here's a guy offensively and defensively who's been a great player, and uh, you know, always people are always saying, "Well, who's the greatest?" You know, and I'm, and my answer to that: Look, the greatest is wherever you want it to be. Uh, if you want it to be Brooks Robinson, Mike Schmidt, Pat Trainer, Eddie Matthews, that's your prerogative. So uh, that's kind of my standard answer: well, Who's the greatest heavyweight champion of the world, boxing-wise, and whoever you want it to be. So. Uh, you know, it, it's kind of difficult to compare players and, and eras, I guess, and the, certainly the all-century team, the, the players who have played in the last 40, or 40 30, 40 years had a better, a big advantage over guys who played way back when. And uh, so, but it was a thrill. You know, uh, when you get my age, any, uh, any uh, award that comes your way, that, that's perfectly fine with me. Well, let's just talk about two things. As great as a career was, you hold two distinctions, I believe, that would fall onto the infamous side, probably more than a famous side. Do you still hold the record for hitting into the most triple plays? Well, I don't think they kept records of that, to tell you the truth. Someone told me that. I probably hit into three or four or whatever. Only one of them was around the horn, and uh, the rest of them were kind of funky plays, maybe a line drive, step on a base, get a guy in a run down, something like that. But, uh, yeah, someone told me that I, I hold a record for that, and I do remember hitting into three or four of them. And what about the All-Star Games? Boy, the American League really struggled for a, for oh, a pretty yeah, long period well, of time. You're right. The All-Star Game, that was uh, got to be kind of embarrassing after a while. I think that the, where the National League got to jump on the American League was the fact that uh, they signed the black players mm-hmm. uh, before the American League did, and and when you got guys like uh, Aaron and Mays and Clemente and Ernie Banks, uh, you got some great baseball players. And uh, I've always enjoyed that. I always say, well, if they'd have played like me in the All Star games, we'd have won a few more. Well, um, I will tell you, you're not the first player to tell me that. Just that about the National League getting the jump when it comes to the African American yeah. players, and and really the American League did not pick up on it as quickly as the NL did. That's right. Uh, I played in uh, 18. A couple of years they had two games, I think, in 60 and 61, but we uh, won two, tied one, and lost 15. I think that was what it was, what the uh, final outcome was. Well, Mr. Robinson, it's always a pleasure, and, and I'm not kidding. When I talk about when you were down here, I just saw the way that everybody, young and old, gravitated towards both you and Mr. Killebrew, and there is something to be said for guys who carry themselves in a well, way that represents baseball in, in, in such a wholesome manner. Well, I appreciate that very much. I thank you for calling. We'll do it again sometime. As I stand here before you, I realize I must be the luckiest man in the world. I keep asking myself, how could any one man have been so fortunate? 
I shall do what I can to continue to make this great game of baseball and this world finer and better. This is a day for my giving thanks, and this is a life from which I want to give back. Thank you.